Hello and welcome back to the Psychedelics in Medicine podcast, where we discuss the future of psychedelic and alternative drug therapy with leading academics in the top of their field in all things scientific. Last week we had a look into the science of microdosing psychedelics. We discussed the history and neurobiology of psychedelics taken in microdoses, and then looked at two academic papers on microdosing. Both papers seem to suggest very little to no difference between microdosing and placebo and both faced methodological issues, with many participants being able to guess if they were given the placebo or microdose. Today, we will look at derivatives of LSD, looking at a few case study molecules. By studying the differences in effects between two derivatives of the same molecule, we are able to infer which parts of the molecule are essential for each effect, furthering our understanding of pharmacology and paving the way to better targeted drug design. Today, I'm once again joined by Dr. Torsten Passi. Dr. Passi is a German psychiatrist, professor at Hanover Medical School, and is an expert in altered states of consciousness. Torsten has performed clinical and experimental studies with numerous psychoactive and psychedelic compounds, including LSD, psilocybin, laughing gas, MDMA, and ketamine, and has published multiple books on psychedelics and intactogens. Welcome back to the show, Torsten. Yeah, hi. Always a pleasure to have you. Now, before we dive into anything, are you able to give us an understanding of what a derivative actually is? Yeah, that's a good question. So usually it is um, kind you have an original molecule, molecule, so to say, you want to explore in different respects. It means in respect to its effects on the body, for example, and you will also maybe uh, trying to shorten its action or so. So this is a reason why you alter the molecule in a certain way. You can alter it by taking an atom or two or three away, but you would also add one, two, three atoms or even another molecule attached to it or something like that, so that you alter the properties of that molecule and its impact on the organism as well as its mode of action or, or at least the duration of action can be modified that way. And it has been also become a kind of fashion since the uh, mid-1980s to alter some molecules of every kind of group of drugs um, um, in a way so that it doesn't uh, fall, fall, falls under the law anymore. So it's not covered by the law anymore because of these modifications. In the US, for example, they came up with a so-called analog act. It means every kind of substance you produce which will have a certain effect is illegal. It doesn't matter how it looks on a molecular level. Yeah, but this has not been done by others. Just the UK have installed a kind of similar law, but that's even not true because that law was installed even earlier in the mid-1970s already. Okay, that's a deriv yeah. derivative, right? Yes, know. thank you. Um, and could you give us an example of a type of derivative? I know that we talk a lot about LSD and this was something that will come up. Um, but I think you could probably talk a little bit more about how the LSD that we know today was actually really not the first lysergic acid molecule that yeah. we were looking at. Yeah, that's important in respect to history that uh, Hofmann, as well as other chemists, chemists at the time at other companies, were looking out for the uh, for the ergot rye uh, mushroom, uh, so-called claviceps purpurea, which has been known to have certain pharmacological effects, especially if it comes to women giving birth and having a lot of bleeding afterwards, then they gave them an extract of that uh, fungus uh, to, to stop the bleeding and stuff. So it has been known that there are certain uh, things going on with that uh, mushroom and that it contains um, a lot of molecules which might have pharmacologically uh, worthful properties. And so Albert Hofmann, the discoverer of LSD, was in fact looking out for certain derivatives of another kind of more key molecule in the, in the mushroom, which has been called lysergic acid. And he was modifying lysergic acid in different ways so that he could look up if it, if it is an, having an action on the blood pressure, for example, or on headaches or uh, whatever kind of even bleeding with, with childbirth and so on. And so he was altering these molecules in some respects or in some directions where he was going, uh, he couldn't find any, any action of the drug anymore. And we will come later to that. 
So LSD, it's interestingly, uh, if you look at older publication, it has been called LSD-25. So why is that? This is a, has a background that these molecules have been kind of codenamed. With LSD, it was Lysergsäure-Diethylamid, which is a German name, LSE, LSD. And so it was the 25th derivative what Hofmann produced out of lysergic acid. And this is the reason why it's sometimes called LSD-25. Thank you very much. It's a really interesting fact that, yeah, I always really do appreciate. Um, and yeah, as we said, we're going to be today taking a look at derivatives of LSD. And when we're looking at derivatives of any substance, it's really important we actually understand how the original molecule looks up. Uh, I don't think I could ask a better person this. Torsten, you did recently publish a book called The Pharmacology of LSD. So could you give us a brief overview of how LSD is working within the body? Yeah, so this is a complex matter because it has a lot of interactions with a lot of receptors. Uh, this is different uh, from uh, psilocybin, which just has actions on two or three different types of his receptors or subtypes. And with LSD, you have more uh, 20 to 30 receptors involved. But however, the main receptors, which are really causing the psychological actions or effects, um, are the same ones as with psilocybin. So usually the main system effective is the serotonin system. So serotonin is one of these neurotransmitters in the brain, and it has certain purposes. Interestingly enough, it has been said about the serotonin system everywhere involved, but responsible for nothing. So it means if you, for example, by certain uh, surgery actions in animals, you kind of eliminate the serotonin system, the animal will behave the same way, but it has not the ability to fine tune with other animals, with the environment, with its own bodily states, and so on. So it seems that uh, the serotonin has mainly the function in the body or in the neurobiological system to, to help us fine tune things, communications, empathic maneuvers, um, and uh, all the other things, even up to movements, you know? So all the fine tuning is done by the serotonin system. So the serotonin system has been found altered by psychedelic drugs, especially those with an indole nucleus, which is a six um, atom ring together with a five atom ring. So they form a kind of like an eight, but with one little one, uh, one um, thing more little than the other one, just five atoms and the other one has, has six. So they are put together. This is the indole nucleus and around it, there will be other atoms attached to the indole nucleus. And so you will have different kinds of action. For example, uh, um, uh, psilocybin and um, uh, LSD have exactly the same basic structure, but the so-called substituents on the molecule are different. And in the case of LSD, it was quite surprising that that might be psychoactive and especially so much in such minute dose, doses, because nobody expected that such a much more complex molecule will still have these actions, which has been found with dimethyltryptamine, for example, dimethyltryptamine, which is an even more simple indole hallucinogen. And so if it comes to how it works in the body, it has different receptors to interact with. And it also produces a lot of actions in, for example, altering the levels of the hormones and uh, altering the blood, your blood cells a little bit. But all these actions are not the main actions, but they are also side effects, which you have to put in regard if you give that medication to a person. But the main uh, interaction uh, of uh, LSD with the organism is uh, with the so-called 5-HT2A receptor, which is a very complex receptor, in fact, which has been deciphered uh, or elucidated a few years ago. And not much more and not much more before. And so um, what we have seen there is uh, it is a very complex receptor and it also has a lot of implications in respect to what it does if it comes becomes activated. Usually it sits outside of the cell, but the action which it induces are going on inside the cell by other so-called second and third messenger systems inside the cells. So we don't know as much about this, but we are nearing to know more 
especially with optogenetics and stuff like that, so where we can look into the cell, what's going on there. But uh, in respect to the cell populations influenced by LSD, the interaction is a little bit more simple because you have mainly an effect in the so-called uh, so pyramidal cells in layer six of the outer cortex of the brain. There is the main interaction. And what is going on there is it, it, the, all the arousal of these cells and the firing of these cells becomes more diffuse, to put it in simple words. That enhances chaos in the brain. And it also might open up some possibilities to alter perceptions, but also bring them into more chaos and make them a little bit non-conformistic, if you want. And uh, it may be also an open up a window for learning processes. So to say when the metal is still hot, you can more easily form it or stuff like that. These examples have been used. Yeah, that's, so this is the main action of uh, LSD. And it also, because of its complex interaction with these pyramidal neurons, it also seems to alter the structure of your ego. Less so in the lower dose range, much so in the higher dose range, even up to the so-called ego dissolution process where you don't feel your ego anymore and where you don't feel borders to the outside world anymore. Yeah, brilliant. And I think, yeah, as you really clearly highlighted there, the possible reasons and mechanisms how psychedelics can cause these profound effects are really complicated. But on a simple level, right. we can see that LSD is working by mimicking serotonin in some respects. And as you said, it's yeah. got this six carbon ring and a five carbon ring in this indole structure as its basic backbone. And we're thinking yeah. that uh, because they're 3D very similar, that's why they can act in a similar way. Yeah. Um, so therefore, we could think that other molecules that resemble LSD only with slight differences may also produce similar effects. So I think it's at this time we should have a look at our first case study of an LSD derivative, LSA also known as lysergic acid amide. So Torsten, can you tell us a little bit about LSA, where it's produced, its history and similarities with LSD? Yeah, the LSA is a pretty interesting molecule in different respects. So first off, Hofmann did not synthesize it in his row of synthesis of different derivatives. Um, but interestingly enough, uh, his uh, co-researcher, uh, Robert Wesson, who also discovered the hallucinogenic mushrooms of Mexico uh, as the first guy who uh, even ate it, ate them. And he put a lot of research into it and came to Hofmann for uh, getting these mushrooms analyzed because the guys in Paris were not able to do that. But interestingly enough, a few years later, uh, his cooperator, Gordon Wesson, came up with another plant and sent it to him or gave it to him. And he analyzed that material and found out that it contained lysergic acid as well as LSA, which is uh, LSA, what is, I don't know, lysergic acid amide. Amide, and so yeah, yeah. It was a very, it was a kind of a wonder to him. So that he found now in nature, the same complex molecules, which he has synthesized before, uh, for example, LSD and other LSD derivatives. So that was very fascinating to him. What he also found in self-experiments, mainly with his laboratory co-workers at that time in the 1950s, it was kind of usual that they might give it a try in person. And what they found is that these the actions of LSA are kind of different, quite different. They're not giving you a lucid kind of consciousness. No, they cloud your consciousness these substances. They also give you very strange psychological effects in most cases. For example, we had one guy on our psychiatric ward after an intoxication with some plants which contained these uh, uh, lysergic acid derivatives, and he had the subjective impression that a bomb has been, explo has been exploded in his head and he had still some reality testing. So he could say, doctor, I know that this did not happen, but the impression was so harsh and so immediate and so confirming that I have no idea what happened in my brain and I'm quite anxious about that. And so this guy needed, I think two to three weeks to kind of calm down on the ward uh, until he could be uh, exposed again. But the, the problem with these substances is that they 
come up with kind of bizarre effects. They are also kind of bad to the body. A lot of people get nauseated and stuff like that. So it's not really recommended to use these uh, Vivoa, Vivea corimbosa, for example, is a Latin name of one of these plants, flowering plants, um, uh, which are contain these alkaloids. And um, in the, uh, on Hawaii, the Hawaiian wood rose, for example, contains these alkaloids. But at last, you have a mixture of these alkaloids, and some of them are bad. So I wouldn't recommend to take these uh, drugs, especially if uh, LSD or something more untoxic is available. And so that was an interesting discovery by Hofmann. And you should take put your hands away from these uh, drugs because they don't do that much good of an effect. Um, however, uh, Hofmann also synthesized, I want to mention that here, uh, the substance ALD52. And for example, this, this substance has 10% less activity of, LS, like, uh, of LSD. So it is kind of quite like effective, effective like LSD. And in the UK especially, they had a big LSD bust going on of a kind of gang which have produced millions of traps in the early 1970s. And interestingly enough, when they put them to court, these guys claimed, oh, we didn't produce LSD, we produced ALD 52. And, you know, and the point was, I think that the police was not in charge of the matter anymore. They kind of destroyed it or something. So they, the police couldn't prove that they were wrong. They might have been right. But as it is sometimes in the UK, as well as in the US, these, these judges are kind of rough in saying, oh, it's kind of the same substance. I don't care. You know, and so they punished them up to 10 years in prison and stuff like that. But it has been produced also by other underground chemists, this molecule, because it's identical to LSD virtually in every respect, just with a little bit less activity. And I think there's another substance to be mentioned, which is called LAD. It has been, there has been rumors around since a few years that LAD, which also has been produced by Hofmann in the 1950s and early 60s. But um, what is uh, interesting about this substance, these rumors say that this is a much more agreeable form of LSD. So it means that the body is not as much affected as like with LSD, which is not a big deal because it isn't that much affected by LSD anyway. But the trip should be more consistent and not so vulnerable as the one with LSD. So I would say as a therapist and also a user of these substances that I like the sensitivity of LSD. It means that you can go into a very harsh trip if it is in place for you personally, or if you use it under not the right circumstances. And so these kind of, how should I say, not so good appearing trips might be very worthful for your in development. And so I wouldn't like to avoid certain effects of LSD, no. I think that's a kind of, you could say, one-sided LSD, which I would not prefer personally, but some people may, and so I wouldn't want to give that advice that that has been uh, rumors around in the more recent times about that molecule. But these are the two most important ones. There were, I think, 25 other LSD kind of derivatives in the uh, former times produced by Hofmann, but uh, virtually all of them had not that much activity. They had much less activity, some of them, and were a little bit more ugly to the body as LSD, LSA, for example, and and the like. But what we could mention in this connection also is that um, Professor David Nichols at uh, Purdue University in Indiana in the US, a major expert on LSD and its derivatives, uh, he, for example, produced a lot of newer derivatives because he tried to find out uh, what is the most important part on the LSD molecule, so to say. You can uh, do research on that by altering different parts of the molecule and you will see less activity or a different kind of activity and so on. So interesting, and I just want to mention that, is that he found even, I think, two derivatives which were even more potent than LSD, but do the same kind of action. So there are molecules out there which are more potent than LSD in respect to being LSD-like. However, um, we don't need them because they are a little bit more potent. But what does that say if you have a molecule which is potent in one tenth of a milligram? So you, you don't need more 
active molecules. And so I don't think that these uh, materials will ever show up on the black market. These are really interesting perspectives. Thank you very much, Torsten. And I, yeah, I quite like the phrase you mentioned there of kind of, I suppose, underground substances for some of these, where because they're derivatives, they're kind of not under the same laws as the classic ones. Um, and I think it's about time we have a look at another one. And this is one I think I would definitely classify as an underground substance. Uh, looking at 1P-LSD, also known as 1-propionyl lysergic acid diethylamide, which is said to have popped up on the internet around 2015, but I'm sure you will be able to give us plenty more information about it. Yeah, uh, 1P-LSD is interesting. Uh, you are right, it was the first derivative uh, coming to the black market. And at that point in time, there were no laws uh, just the analog laws in the US and in the UK partially, uh, which have uh, prohibited these drugs or, or this uh, specific substance. And um, therefore, it became quite, an, uh, quite a deal by being sold on the internet and distributed uh, quite a bit and stuff. And in Germany, for example, we have a certain commission, um, the Narcotics Control Board, where I'm part of, um, however, uh, and we have to look at the substances and also about the dangerous the molecular configurations of pharmacology and so because we are the experts. So we are looking at these substances and we decide, okay, this has to be prohibited or not. And but this process needs a year until it has been gone has been brought to the parliament afterwards after we do our recommendation, they put it into a law and then they have to to uh, to vote for it in the parliament. And that needs a year. So you have one year left for selling your drugs, so to say. Yeah. And meanwhile, in Germany, they also installed a kind of analog law. But the difference to the one in UK and the US is that it is not about the users. Users can't be punished by it. So if you would order a kind in Germany, still legal LSD from a source, let's say, outside of the European Union, for example, they could confiscate it but they couldn't go after you, right? Even if you would be busted with it at your home, if you don't have a kilogram, which is obvious that you want to deal it. And then if you just need it for your own purpose, they couldn't, can't do anything about it. But however, so the, this one year is left. And what these guys did is because some of the derivatives are already under the law, even in Germany. But what these guys did is they found another version of altering a molecule, a molecule. And I think they looked at what, what the pharmaceutical industry is doing. And for example, the pharmaceutical industry recently came up with lysdexamphetamine. It means that you have an usual amphetamine molecule, but you attach another complete molecule to it, right? And therefore they claimed that it can't be abused because if the other molecule attached is still on, it has no activity. And if you take it in the stomach, as a usual patient should do, then it will be uh, removed, the other molecule, and then you have the full effect. This is not really true, what I know from the addicts. But however, the guys from the underground might have picked that up and said, okay, let's produce an LSD molecule with a propionyl molecule attached to it, and then it's not under the law. And that, in fact, worked out. And we recently uh, at a toxicology department of a major university in, in uh, Germany, uh, this had be, has been already published, uh, we did an, uh, um, an experiment uh, where we did the oral version uh, or did it orally, the 1PLSD, as well as intravenously. And uh, in our subjects, it was immediately changed into LSD, even in already in the bloodstream. So you don't get it into your head. We couldn't find any 1PLSD in the subjects which have taken it orally. So this shows that it will be immediately converted into usual LSD if it's in your body. And so it kind of gives you the same effect, but from a scientific point of view, the molecule is much heavier when you take it. So it means you have to say, it's kind of 15 to 20% less LSD in the preparation because the other 15 to 20% are the propionyl molecule, right? So if you would like to take 100, you have to take 120. 
to have the same equivalent dose. And uh, kind of the same is going on right now because some, I think these are Englishmen, uh, in fact, uh, underground chemists are having already a lot of other molecules in their drawer. And so they, if, if a prohibition is spoken out, then immediately afterwards, they come up, for example, right now with one CP LSD, you know, and this they found is still not under a lot of laws. And so they can sell it at least outside the UK and outside the US. Yeah. And so this is what I call a cat and mouse game. It doesn't make sense. And so you will see me, sometimes me and some other experts in the Narcotics Control Board voting against these prohibitions. If they are done more explicitly, we can still put a definite prohibition on a molecule, especially if we see that it is market uh, uh, on a, a broader scale. Yeah. And so therefore, we have to do these votes, but sometimes I don't, in respect to LSD derivatives, we just produce other derivatives by our prohibitions. It doesn't make sense. And so if we have to find other measures, one of the best is obviously to make clear to the public what LSD does and what it not does and what the dangers are and what the potential advantages are and so on. But other than prevention, you can't really do anything, though this is an illusionary thing to be and next floor and so on. But we also have to have a little empathy for the police. For example, in Germany, if they would bust a shop with a kilogram of 1P LSD, right, or 1CP LSD, and it's not under the law, then they can bust the shop, they can bust the owner, but the seizure of the material they have to give it back. And this is something a policeman can't do, you know, to, to find a criminal in his eyes, and then he has to leave him free and give him his drug back. This is, this is uh, unimaginable for a policeman. And this is why these guys really insist even to the Narcotics Control Board to get these things prohibited because they don't want to do these kind of processes, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's about these newer derivatives of LSD, which seem to be kind of undangerous up to now, the molecules, but we don't know what will be produced in the future, future and which might be dangerous. And we know from LSD, for example, that there can be inter-receptor interactions of LSD derivatives, which are dysfunctional, at least, and uh, um, in the worst case, dangerous to the organism. That's uh, yeah, a really, really interesting group of points there, Torsten. Thank you very much. Um, and I think we'll spend the remainder of this episode discussing one of the more researched LSD derivatives, uh, BOL148, also known as 2-bromo-LSD, which only differs to LSD by the addition of a single bromine atom. Um, now, you have in your past researched with 2-bromo-LSD, and we'll get onto that shortly, uh, but could you give us a little rundown of the history and science? Or two bromo LSD. Yeah, that is pretty interesting to talk about because uh, bromo LSD, or um, uh, it, the code name was BOL one hundred forty eight. So you can easily imagine from what I've told you that it was the one hundred forty eighth derivative of uh, LSD or lysergic acid derivatives which Hofmann produced. And he produced it in a target-oriented fashion in so far as he tried to find a substance which interacts with the serotonin system, at least in these primitive assays which they had at the time, in the, uh, if possible, in the same way as LSD, but does not produce any hallucinogenic effects. That was being thought at the time to be the key or the clue to even mental disorders and stuff like that. If we can find substances which kind of interact with the receptor and might stop or push, push LSD away from the receptor, stuff like that, that could be pretty interesting, they, they thought at the time. And so they also, in respect to animal research, they needed an LSD placebo. And this is the background of producing BOL-148. Um, the point is that this derivative has been used in hundreds of animal studies in comparison to LSD mainly, 
Uh, but it was kind of left when they had better instruments and assays for detecting serotonin interactions in the brain and and uh, of uh, serotonin receptors with substances and stuff. It was kind of left. Yeah. And uh, therefore, the research into bromo-LSD was virtually stopped at the end of the 60s. But however, some research was still going on and it has not been much known because it was at first a business secret that, you know, the main neuroleptic antipsychotic drug, the most, I would, shouldn't say the most modern, but one of the most modern ones and the most uh, administered by far on the whole world called risperidone, you know how that has been developed by intoxicating rats and other animals for weeks. And then they took the LSD away and tried to reverse the effects, which have been chronic at that point when they have given that for weeks and months to the animals. The animals were, and they got high doses. So they were kind of very strangely altered and they tried to reverse that by giving them different neuroleptic drugs. And in this process, they developed risperidone. And there is in nature, uh, nature psychiatry or medicine, there is a publication out there by the guy who developed that. But at that point, nobody should know that these guys were at Janssen Pharmaceuticals, the major neuroleptic producer worldwide. They were eager to intoxicate animals with LSD quite a bit. But it has been published afterwards how they can, the psychopathology of uh, model of LSD or something that publication is about. So it's pretty interesting that even later on, they used LSD that way that they tried to reverse it. And so they also used, for example, bromo-LSD and in these experiments. And so bromo-LSD has been uh, always a little bit around, but not that much since the 1960s. And now we... Ben might uh, lead over to uh, our research, what we conducted, not... Yeah, um, so Torsten, as you just said, uh, it seems to have slowed down from the 1960s. However, uh, today I've picked a paper co-authored by you um, with Matthias Kart, John Halpin and Michal uh, Bernatek titled The Non-Hallucinogen 2-Bromo-Lysergic Acid Diethylamide as Preventative Treatment for Cluster Headaches. Um, this study was an open, non-randomized case series looking at the effects of bromo-LSD on the frequency and intensity of cluster headaches in five patients suffering from cluster headaches. So quickly, before we start discussing the results, has there been much use on the use of psychedelics uh, for cluster headaches? And if not, where was the motivation and thought process behind this study to use 2-bromo-LSD? Yeah, okay, so this is uh, quite a story, but I just want to give you a short outline of what happened in respect to treating uh, psychedelics, uh, treating cluster headaches with psychedelic drugs. So it has been found in the mid-1990s by a Scottish uh, cluster patient who was a kind of OCD person, I would say, because he wrote down every day what he did and what he ate for tens of years to try to find out what triggers his cluster headaches and what not. So he had two clusters of headaches, means these headaches, the so-called cluster headaches, are very serious headaches. So they kind of, more than 50% of the patients do suicide because of these severe pain, what they experience. It's unbelievable. If you look up in YouTube, such an attack, it's, it's terrible. It's really terrible, unbelievable. However, uh, this guy did these uh, diaries, so to say, and at a certain point, he had no cluster headaches anymore. And means in his case, and that's a usual uh, example. So he had three months of cluster headaches where he had them every day in the spring and three months in the fall, in the summer and in the winter, no headaches. This is so-called episodic cluster headache. Yeah, But you have, if you have a phase with cluster headaches, you have them daily and sometimes even a few times daily, really terrible. However, some treatments has been found, but there is no real strategy to treat this condition. You just can reduce the symptoms somewhat. However, what happened with this guy is that in 1995, he didn't get not an attack. And he had no idea. The whole year, he did not get an attack. He had no idea what happened. So he was going through all his diaries and look up. Nah, nah. He couldn't find any difference. 
but there was just one difference that he took LSD the first time in his life two times in that year before his headaches were coming to a close or did not appear. And so he thought, man, the only thing, because he was quite sure it was the only thing because he did these diaries. There was no other difference. And so then he came up with the idea, okay, let's try if that is the point it, it works, uh, LSD on my cluster headaches. So what he did is he made a pause at first, waited until the next, next cluster headaches came up. And they came up one and a quarter of a year later. And then he took LSD again and they were gone. So they could be a connection. We know about spontaneous healing. We know about placebo effects. This guy was not stupid, so he was skeptic. But he found with a, a lot of more experiments going on during the next three years that that might be a treatment even for cluster headaches. And he published that on the very early internet. You have to remind yourself, 25 years ago, there was no internet. So how could he get more response or how can he bring out his message, so to say? But in 2000, the, the internet started in earnest. And so he put it out on the internet and a lot of people were trying it out because they were so in despair because of their condition and they could be treated as well with the user medication, most of them. And so they tried it and it was obvious that that worked even beyond the placebo effect. And what happened then is that some guys, which I have been connected with uh, for some years at Harvard Medical School, they were uh, saying, okay, we are not having these bad judgments about psychedelic drugs, so let's look at these patients. Let's take a closer look at them. And what they did is they conducted a survey about them. So they invited 50 of these patients uh, to Harvard Medical School to the psychiatry lab uh, under Harrison Pope. And they uh, interviewed these guys and came to the conclusion that there is a consistent pattern which could be used in regular treatment. But we don't have uh, the appropriate studies to bring LSD or psilocybin to market. You have to remind yourself, or I have to remind you that this was in 2008. No psychedelic hype, no psychedelic renaissance, nothing. Even not the first studies about the effects of MDMA on PTSD were published. And so we were quite in a bad climate. So what happened is the cluster self-help organization of the cluster patients, uh, they approached us to do that survey at first. And then later on, they came up with some money and said, okay, let's do an LSD study at Harvard in the appropriate format so that we can prove that it really works and we can uh, get, uh, we can uh, produce further studies. And so at last we were showing up at the research administration at Harvard Medical School and we're sitting with the, uh, with the other professor, John Halpern, and with the guy from these cluster self-help groups. Um, and we were sitting in a very large room having two fireplaces and a big large table, kind of five meters in diameter, whatever. And three people were sitting in, uh, uh, in front of us, so to say, on the other side of the table. And we were explaining what we are eager to do. And, uh, and then at a certain, they were quite cooperative and nice and so on. And that is, but at a certain point, there was a pause in the conversation. And the guy from the research uh, uh, administration, as the, obviously the, the lead guy, uh, started to, to talk again and said, you know what? we had Leary here, it means we had Timothy Leary here on faculty and he produced a lot of problems. This was kind of 50 years ago, but you're still aware of that. And we would be very careful by installing any drug studies here at Harvard. And so we came out of that meeting feeling a wall in between us and the research committee. So we had no idea how to proceed. So I came up with the idea, okay, let's do, because at that point in time, it was kind of obvious from, from the data sets that you need the hallucinogenic effect. Otherwise you will have no effect on the cluster headaches. Means microdosing, mini dosing does not work, virtually not work. In some people it might be a little blah, 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 but in, in the most of them, it would not work. And therefore we thought, okay, it might have to do with the hallucinogenic effect. So if we could find out an LSD derivative quite similar to LSD, but without an hallucinogenic effect, we might be out of that trap and could say, okay, we tested that already and it does not work. So we have to do it with LSD. 
and at that point, you have to realize that when I was at uh, Harvard University in Boston, not far away from that, uh, from our office, was the living place of John Rick Doblin. And so we had a lot of discussions with discussions with Rick, and I said to him, "What happens if Bromo LSD will work? What should we do then? Then we can't conduct an LSD study, which was our goal." And he said, "Okay, if it is that way, it is that way. It might even be better to help the patients." And what happened at last is we had a hard time to to find somebody, still hard to find today, uh, who could synthesize Bromo LSD because it's not easy to synthesize the Bromo. The reaction with the Bromo is very hard to do, but it is very important because it seems that because the, the bromo atom is a little bit larger than a hydrogen atom, it does not fit in the receptor anymore and does not do any action. So it's non-hallucinogenic. So we thought, okay, if it's not interactive with receptor, we'd also not uh, give the cluster uh, patients any relief. But after we found the psychedelic chemists in the uh, in uh, Germany, which were able to uh, to synthesize it, we uh, gave it to a few patients, uh, very desperate patients, which have been treatment resistant for some years and were very much suffering. So we hinder them to do suicide, so to say. In this case, the IRB, the Institutional Review Board, has given us permission to do this very tiny study on five or six patients. But however, after the first two patients, it became obvious that it did even work better than LSD <laughs> instead of working worse. And so therefore, at this point, nobody had any knowledge that that might work. And so it was a non-obvious discovery and we could do a pattern on it. And Harvard, the Americans are always in that respect, very active. So they immediately came up with the idea, let's do a pattern on it. And in cooperation with Hanover Medical School, where I was employed at that time, we did a patent together. And the story goes in much more detail, but I don't. Do, I just want to give you a rough idea about it. So we at last founded an own company to try to get investors involved to produce Bromo LSD as a medication for the international market, so that people can or patients can profit from it. This at last didn't work out as well because. If you have migraine, for example, 150 people out of 1,000 have migraines. So you can sell quite a bit. If it comes to cluster headaches, 1.2 out of 1,000 have cluster headaches. So it's not a big deal for, for the pharmaceutical companies, at least in their view, because these cluster headache patients have to take if something works for them, which is also not often the case, but if something works for them, they have to take medications with a lot of side effects, sometimes on a daily basis to uh, reduce their, uh, the frequency of the attacks and so on. So they would be quite happy to have such a medication. And they are usually quite well informed about their illness. They don't say, oh, I'm having headaches. They know what they have usually. And so they, I think the pharmaceutical industry can sell something. But what have what uh, we ended up with a bankruptcy of our little company because we were not able to find any kind of investor uh, at that point. But later on, a philanthrope millionaire from the U.S. who was already involved from the beginning on with the patent building process and so on, but just for. Uh, non-profit reasons at that point, he uh, recently sold his uh, very versatile company. And out of that, he had so much money that he called me up and said, Torsten, I will develop this medication further. And I can't tell you uh, too much because of a confidentiality agreement. But what I can say is that we have gone through all the in vitro studies and the animal toxicology studies without serious problems. So the medication is on track to be produced as a medication, which will still cost, I think, 10 millions or around that. If you know anybody who has cluster addicts and a lot of money, please let me know. But we are already on track and we also have still some money left for doing the next few steps and then sell it to the pharmaceutical industry at last because we are not a pharmaceutical company. Yeah, what an utterly fascinating story that is to get to the end of the experiment. 
But uh, the experiment did happen, and you mentioned a little bit there that it was positive effects working better than LSD. So, what can you tell us a little bit actually a bit more about the results of this study, please? Yeah, thanks for asking that because that has to be deepened uh, completely right. Um, what is pretty interesting with this medication is if you take, for example, a, a usual dose of LSD, like say 100, and uh, you have cluster headaches, then you might not feel the cluster headaches for one, two, three days. Not a big deal, because afterwards you are back again. But what has been found by these experimenters, uh, the self-help groups, which have used it quite a bit more and informed themselves in the internet, in conversations and so on, uh, has been found that if you take the drug three times in a row, five days apart, each dose, then you might get a so-called, we don't talk about a prophylactic effect. This is usually the case if you take a certain drug for example, against your manic depressive illness or something on a daily basis, so that your system is somewhat tuned uh, tuned in a little bit other way than usual. And so you don't get your manic depressive ep episodes, but you have to take it on a daily basis. So this is called prophylaxis treatment because the episodes themselves don't appear anymore. In this case, it's different because you just take it three times, five days apart, and then you don't have cluster headaches for months or in most cases years without taking it again. And so this could be quite a deal for the cluster patients. And with Bromo LSD, we have not mentioned that as much, but Bromo LSD in the appropriate dose range, which is in the range of two to three milligrams per os, it has virtually no side effects. So you take a medication with outside effects three times, five days apart, and your cluster addicts will be gone for years. I mean, how is that? And that can also imply that we have found by chance, not by being big discoverers or researchers, but by chance, a medication and working mechanism of a medication which is quite astonishing. So you take it three times. It's not in the bloodstream or anywhere in your tissues anymore, but it still has this preventative effect. So it might be two steps in the future that can happen sometimes with discoveries that they by chance discover something which is far in the future. And a lot of people today, researchers worldwide, look at so-called epigenetic processes. So it means how your uh, genes, the action of your genes can be changed, not the e genes themselves, but how they act if they are quiet or if they are active, for example. The activation can be modified of certain genes. And our hypothesis from the beginning on was because it has been known that cluster headache is very sensitive to changes of circadian rhythms. So if you, are, if you have a jet lag, you can't cope with that if you have cluster headaches, you know, because everything will be completely in chaos and you will have one attack after the other. So it's really happy. So we think that we might have found a medication which works on epigenetic, altering epigenetic processes long-term, you know, and it has been hypothesized before us even that cluster headaches might have to do with certain genes which kind of steer the circadian rhythms and other rhythms in the body. You know, you have, in fact, 30 to 40 different rhythms going on in the body in, on a kind of daily schedule. You know, your hormones will be different. Your cortisol is different in the morning than in the evening and so all stuff like that, you know. And so, therefore, there, it might have been a big discovery some people might find out later on. But LSD has shown the same thing before. We did it under more controlled circumstances. So we have been the researchers published, publishing that, but LSD is a molecule which might even have these kind of medication effect on a serious disease which can't be treated otherwise as well. Yeah. Um... I mean, really, really interesting points, especially about the epigenetics. I mean, I think maybe for me, at least personally, epigenetics is going to be a massive field in the future. Yeah. Um, there have not been a lot of studies, unfortunately, on the epigenetic effects of psychedelics. I know that there was one about a year ago by Dr. Simon Ruffle looking at ayahuasca's effects. 
but I think that's definitely a place where there will be a lot more research in the future. Um, right, so what we can see from this though, very clearly, is that LSD and, and specifically 2-bromo LSD can be massively, massively helpful for patients with cluster yeah. headaches. Um, however, moving away from the use of 2-bromo LSD as a treatment for cluster headaches, it also offers an incredibly useful tool for us to test the importance of the psychedelic trip. As you mentioned before, it was initially used as a placebo to compare to LSD. Um, but I think because, again, we mentioned a little bit earlier that there's been many different modes of actions proposed for psychedelic therapy. Yeah. Is it this mystical experiences being induced by a hallucination? Is it increased entropy and communication between regions of the brain? Or is it injection of neuroplasticity? But it's always been very difficult for us to tear these two apart, particularly the idea of a hallucination versus a neurological level. But 2CB, sorry, 2-bromo LSD can almost offer us a paradigm to test these two. So can you see 2-bromo LSD being used to test the importance of the psychedelic trip? Yeah, it has been tested to, in animals, especially, to find out also in humans. 300 humans have uh, gotten LSD, bromo LSD in the past in controlled experiments, uh, but uh, also some patients with different diseases and so on. But uh, you are right, uh, especially in animals, uh, it has been tested against LSD to try to find out what is specific about LSD and what is subtracted, so to say, if you use a non-hallucinogenic derivative. So I personally would be a little bit skeptic uh, about its use in such uh, studies, what you were mentioning. Uh, this is because it seems that the molecule does not fit into, into the receptor. This is my hypothesis. It hasn't been proven up to now. Uh, a lot of researchers would, would agree. Some wouldn't they would still think that no, it fits in the receptor. It just not induces the second and third messenger system inside the cell. It could be possible that way. And I think some researchers are even looking out for that, if that's a difference or not. And therefore, I think the psychological experience is one thing. I think it is very impactful, but other researchers might hypothesize otherwise. It's okay, and we can do experiments of that, uh, on that. But I think it is right now in the psychedelic hype what we have right now with a lot of financial uh, um, uh, money involved um, uh, that uh, some uh, researchers are on the way to produce 5-HT2A receptor agonists, which kind of push the receptors, but with, without producing hallucinogenic effects. By the way, uh, I think LSA is such a molecule. It has been known for quite a while that this can induce a lot of the stuff which, which uh, LSD induces, but not all of it. And so therefore, that could be a more appropriate molecule even for looking out for these kinds of things. But uh, I would think that they should produce something which activates the receptor, but maybe in a different way. And this can't be done with bromo-LSD, I think. But we don't know exactly about the interactions of the bromo-LSD with the receptor. What we can say is that from the clinical uh, level, so what we see how the patients are changing, it's virtually nothing with bromo-LSD, but quite a bit with the uh, uh, equivalent dose of LSD. So there might be a different mechanism of action, obviously, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> That's, yeah, really, really interesting and incredibly valid points there. So thank you very much for that, Torsten. Yeah. Right. Um, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So thank you very much for listening to the end of the Psychedelics and Medicine podcast with me, Ben Clayden, and our wonderful guest, also known sometimes as the Psychedelic Human Encyclopedia, Dr. Torsten Passy. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, at your preferred streaming platform for new episodes every month. That's all for now. Thank you and take care.